Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we have on the show Alex Morris, recurring guest at this point. And I'll give a little pitch for Alex. He runs the Science of Hitting Substack, and it is one of my probably top favorite investing blogs. He writes three articles. It's basically three articles every two weeks. Um, it's thorough coverage on companies he owns, as well as researching stocks outside of his portfolio. And then on top of it, it's just like general investing framework write-ups and kind of how he's evolved as a value investor. And he just wrote something up called My Evolution as a Value Investor. And I think it's one of the, his best write-ups. I really recommend everyone going and checking it out. We're going to link to his Substack in the show notes. For those of you that have heard him before, um, you're probably familiar with Alex on the show. Um, we're talking about Kafa today, which this is a really fun one to look at, especially given that it's so popular right now, right around IPO time, and that a lot of people are just writing it off to begin with without even really breaking down or looking at the business. Um, and so Alex takes a thorough look at it, and uh, I'm excited to share this interview with you. I guess without further ado, here's our interview with Alex Morris. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by Alex Morris. He is the author of The Science of Hitting Substack and recurring guest on the show. I'm not sure how many times you've been on at this point, but it's a lot. And today we're talking about, um, I guess, popular stock as of late, but it's something you recently did uh, some research on for your Substack. We're talking about Kava, which I guess, why don't we start with... I don't think it's everywhere in the US. So why don't we just talk about like the concept? What actually is Kava and what are customers going there to get? Yeah, first off, thanks for having me on again, guys. What we what was last time? Netflix? No, there's one in between. There is well, we we definitely did Airbnb because that's one of our most popular episodes. I think any listeners interested in that business, go listen to that one. We did Netflix and I, there was another one. We'll have to look. I'll I'll do some research while you're answering. It's probably down, so don't do too much research. On all <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so anyways, thanks for having me back. Kava is, yeah, maybe it helps to start a little bit of the background. Kava was started by uh, three childhood friends who in, in 2006 opened a, a traditional Mediterranean restaurant in, in Maryland. And uh, two years later, they started getting into the uh, CPG business selling dips and spreads, you know, hummus and tzatziki and things like that. Um, I think primarily through Whole Foods or solely through Whole Foods. And as part of that process, they hired a gentleman named Brett Schulman, who be, who is now the CEO of the company. Um, you know, a few years after they started uh, with the CPG business, they opened the first, you know, what we call like a modern kava. And essentially what it is, is it's a fast, fast casual chain. It's, it's very similar to Chipotle in terms of it's a walk the line model where you step up and, you know, you pick either a pita or a bowl or a salad 
Um, you know, so you pick the base, then you, then you pick a protein of some kind, you pick additional toppings, vegetables and the like, you pick, you know, different dressings and things, like I said, tzatziki and, and hummus, all that. And yeah, it's a, it's a true walk the line model where the food's made in front of you. So if there's, if there's nobody there, you can get in and out in you know, three minutes or whatever it is versus I think some things that get bucketed as fast casual are fast casual like in terms of it being a little faster, but they have Zoe's is a good example as we're talking about, which is now part of Kava. Um, it was more of what some of those other formats are like where you walk up in order, but you're still waiting five or 10 minutes for someone to prepare your food in the back and then bring it out to you. So it's a, so it's a slight difference that in my mind is, uh, you know, pretty relevant in terms of kind of what, what customers value in today's world. Um, so yeah, so the company had, uh, about 70 stores, I think by 2018, as they continue to build out the fast casual concept. And, and that's where, uh, they, they did a transformative deal with Zoe's, which maybe I'll stop there. Cause I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but it's just not to go too far ahead. Yeah, we do have the, yeah, you're going into the third question there, uh, for any listeners that, you know, don't know, we do have the questions that we make beforehand and we do send them over to the, to, to the guests. So we do have the format, but I want to talk about before we get more into the history and how they kind of got to where they are today, right. When they IPO is, you know, what's the fun thing about a restaurant is you can kind of go to it and check it out and see what you think. And I think that's what happened with a lot of people when they went to Chipotle in the early days, they're like, wow, this is a new model. This is really innovative. Um, and it's just a great product. So you did some boots on the ground research. Uh, what did you think? And do you think this is a concept that can go, you know, you know, continue to grow? Yeah. Well, funny enough. So, so, so Zoe's, which is where my interest in this company kind of started from used to be a public company that I was invested in. And the reason I knew about it is because I had gone there as a customer. Um, so, so I have been to a Kava, uh, I actually went last week, kind of, or two weeks ago and prep for the write-up that I did to see how it was similar, different from what I had seen at Zoe's. It was actually the same, same real estate. And, you know, I think the general gist that I got was, as I said, it's a true walk the line model. It's a little bit more modern. Um, I would, I would say better uh, service model for today's world. Um, you know, one thing that really stood out to me, which I did more digging on later on was, you know, pricing relative to, to Chipotle. Um, and, you know, we had some conversations before we hopped on today. It sounds like it's similar at Sweetgreen and I would assume at other, you know, of these smaller fast casual chains. I was surprised to see that Chipotle, there was a chicken burrito for starting at 850 in the, in the plaza that I checked two weeks ago. And if you went to Cava and you wanted to make a pita or a bowl, the price would be 20, 30% higher than that. Um, so there is, there is something interesting about uh, the game that Chipotle's playing, especially obviously when it's compared to fast casual or historically compared or fast food. I mean, when it's historically compared to fast food, it was, you know, the higher price kind of premium alternative. And now as they become a scaled player and the one that's very well known, it's, it's interesting in some ways that they may be uh, finding a, posi- a position a little bit in between those two, uh, not to get too extreme on that statement, but um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, it's a compelling concept. I think the variety of, of options that they had honestly was a bit overwhelming. Um, I think it's the kind of thing that they, they learned to refine more and more over time, but, but I think they have a lot of the pieces in place that, that would enable this to be a chain that could, you know, be 
significantly larger than it is today, which is, you know, at, at the end of 2023, they expect to have called 300 units nationwide. Okay. And before we get to the next question, I would do want to note that that show was on Roku. So it's not something you own. It was actually, you know, you're kind of concerned with some of the, uh, I think the title of the show was, was it a commodity or the next great computing platform? A little bit of a mm. tease. I wouldn't call it the next great computing platform, but yeah, if anyone's interested in, you know, the Roku business model, I'll go listen to that as well. How, uh, how did it taste? How was your experience at Kava as a diner? I thought it was good. It was a bit, it was a bit, uh, strong for lack of a better term, very, a lot of taste, a lot of flavor. Um, and, and the thing I ordered was one of the pre-selected meals. Cause again, I thought it was a bit overwhelming trying to walk the line and pick stuff out. I didn't even know, you know, what 20 or 30% of the things were weird beans and other things that I just wasn't really familiar with. So I went with the pre-selected option and it was, I think it was 1450. Um, so it was a lot of food. I thought it tasted good, but it was noticeably more expensive. Again, I'm talking about in a in a strip mall where there's a where there's a Chipotle three units down. So um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was an interesting experience. Interesting, and I think I remember in your write up you mentioned that, and you just said this, but you were overwhelmed with the options, like the the amount of choices, which is something I think Chipotle has gotten right. Is just it's a very limited selection. Do you think there's any? I guess, do you think that'll matter for Kava anyway? I mean, I'm sure they, they have their own thoughts, right? And they, they probably have some, uh, at, at a minimum, educated guesses on how, how this all works. I, I just simply noted that the number of dips and spreads and things were, there was a large number. I mean, I would say there were 10 or so. Um, another thing that was interesting that I, that I noticed, and, and it, it, it reminded me of something I read in a Tegas interview about Sweetgreen in terms of the the inventory requirements of operating with uh, a real emphasis on fresh food. I think it said something along the lines of that there was a delivery almost every single day to the store um, in order to, in order to ensure the quality and freshness of the food, which obviously depending on how much volume you're doing can be. um, I mean, even if you are doing a lot of volume, it's still a challenging logistical thing to deal with. Right. And at Kava behind at the start of the, the make line, was what appeared to be like five or six different types of greens that were kept in uh, almost like a refrig- refrigerated kind of serve area. Um, and noticing that just made me wonder, again, like how much how much are you dealing with the, the logistical challenges associated with having something like that? And how much is it doing for your business to have that versus just to the typical greens that you get at like a Chipotle, right? So those kind of things stood out to me. But I, I would assume a lot of that is you know, something that you continue to tweak and learn from over time, especially as you go into new markets. You think the employee was like, why is this guy like psychoanalyzing the, the, the our, our restaurants? Uh, I was asking him about the, uh, the traffic trends and how many people are on the make line during uh, other parts of the day. And I, I think he was slightly confused about why I was asking these things. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, let's go. You you already mentioned some of the history. Um, 
anything else there that you think is important in the company's history? And then can you talk specifically to the Zoe's Kitchen deal? Because it sounds like it was quite transformative for the business. Yeah, I think real quick to in the history or or really the present, I guess I'd say is, you know, what's important to recognize is that the banner has the Kava banner has attractive restaurant level economics, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's basically trying to get a clean look at the the unit economics, uh, you know, excluding other costs that may be at corporate head, you know, those types of expenses that you really wouldn't apply to unit level. Obviously they're relevant, but it helps you to look at what kind of the economics are on a unit basis. Um, you know, this is a chain that has at a comparable size to on unit count to where Chipotle was in the mid two thousands has margins that are, that are as good or in my mind have properly accounted for the Zoe's, you know, parts of the business margin profile that is better than what Chipotle had at a similar time in its history. Um, you know, the Zoe's acquisition is a very messy deal. Um, so in 2018, they, they bought Zoe's, which is a chain of 260 stores. I think it's worth noting um, for $300 million at a time when Gian Cava had 70 or 80 units. So this is a very big deal. Um, it's also a very messy deal. And probably the easiest way to see that is, you know, again, seven, let's, say, let's say 70 plus 260 is 330. Well, you're looking at a year-end 2023 store count for Cava of, of roughly 300. So it just it just kind of shows you how much of this has been conversions and closures driven in terms of them trying to figure out the optimal real estate and and you know what this business looks like going forward. Um, you know that said, I think the deal is I think the deal was opportunistic in terms of them giving giving them the ability to to kind of meaningfully expand the base. Um, I think Ron Shake, who's from He's the founder of Panera and and now runs a firm called Act Three Holdings that that invested in Kava as part of that deal. I think having him involved is uh, incredibly important to the to the story long term. He's chairman of the board and they own Act Three owns. I think it's around twelve million shares. Um, so and also the price point is interesting, right? They paid three hundred million for again two hundred sixty locations and. Um, we can see how we can see how the market is is valuing a uh, successful Kava today, right? At not a dissimilar number of stores, and it's valued at uh, more than ten times that 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 number. So you know, it kind of speaks to, to it kind of speaks to where Zoe's was at, but it also speaks to maybe the opportunity they had to to kind of quickly add to their real estate and some real estate that is probably very well placed uh, in terms of the locations that I visited. For example, the those two are. They're in attractive plazas and they're in their good locations. So I think that's probably what they saw in terms of accelerating where they were trying to get to. Um, and yeah, now they're almost done with all the pain of going through that. So uh, hopefully it's cleaner going forward. Yeah. And one more question before we kind of get into the, you know, the actual business, the actual financials, as we kind of go through the history and it's kind of a double question as I wanted to think about this, um, do you think the Kava, or excuse me, the Zoe's acquisition by Kava was smart, good in the long run? Uh, and on top of that, you mentioned that they're still absorbing kind of the acquisition stuff, and it might be muddying the numbers or maybe you know hurting some of the margins. Can you maybe hit on that a little bit more? Because I don't think I that's not something I've thought about when looking at Kava's S one before. 
Yeah. Long story short, I think it was, I, I, I think it was the right deal to do. And you can get into some weird, you can get into some theoretical accounting on, you know, for example, if you were the hundred percent equity owner in advance of that deal, do you think it's the the right decision to make? I think it partly depends on your objectives, right? If you're trying to scale this concept and you think you've landed on the right concept, um, you know, your thought process on how much of the equity to give away to make that happen um, should should at least be informed, right, by the size of the prize and and how much this kind of accelerates that. Um, I think there's a very real possibility that this deal in hindsight is looked back as as being quite intelligent in terms of that objective, you know, regardless of how what X percent of the equity you had to give up to get it done. So I think judged in that light, I think it could be very smart. And again, I think Ron Shake's involvement and you know, he's chairman of the board now. Um, he's he was intimately involved with Panera, former, formerly a St. Louis bread company, or I believe that was kind of the predecessor. He was intimately involved with that going from a you know, nascent chain to, to something with a very large number of stores. So he, he strikes me as the kind of person you want to have in the boardroom as you go through the challenges of taking something from 200, 300 units to potentially over time, thousands of units. Um, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. Basically, you mentioned that Zoe's Kitchen still may be kind of the transition and stuff like that. You know, the the, the remodels have been hurting their numbers on a consolidated basis. Um, it's not something I thought about when I'm reading the S1. So maybe... I don't know how much of an impact that is. And did they mention anything about when we should see kind of the full breakaway from the old Zoe's um, expenses? Yeah. So it it took me a while to even come to this conclusion. The S1 was pretty messy given given what is going on in the business. It kind of makes sense it was messy, but I, I think they at times in the S1 struggled to kind of clearly show what is going on here. Long story short, the Kava bannered stores in 2022 at restaurant level EBIT margins of call it 20%. The Zoe's bannered stores had restaurant level EBIT margins in the mid single digits, which gets you to a blended number that they kind of showed for the whole enterprise of 15, 16%, which puts you in the same ballpark as CMG. And, you know, I think it was 2003 or 2004 when they were at a similar, similar unit size. So, so yeah, you can obviously see Zoe's was, you know, margins were restaurant level margins were 1500 bips lower than, than at Kava. Um, you know, another data point they had in there that I thought was helpful um, of the 54 locations that they converted in 21, uh, in 22, those locations delivered 2.0 million in kind of average unit volumes. In 19, when those were, when they were those locations, I think they said they were at one three or one four. So, you know, they basically got a, they basically got a 50% lift in, in unit volumes on those conversions from, from 19 to 22. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk a little more about the financial performance for Kava and maybe in your write-up, you compared it to Chipotle. And I thought that was a really um, useful illustration. How do you think about where Kava's at financially relative to kind of Chipotle in the early days? And what are some of the big differences? I think the the main thing, and I tried to I tried to get this across in the write up, and hopefully I did a good job at doing so, is is to appreciate well, one, the Chipotle situation is really messy given the historic investments by McDonald's, and you know not just in terms of not just in terms of the dollars they put in, but also in terms of you know the the organizational knowledge maybe that was imparted on them, or even how the costs were 
potentially allocated, right? Until you get until you get clean broken out financials from CMG, it's hard to say. So you, know, you look at that period. Again, I just spoke about the restaurant level margins. You look at below the line expenses, the things that are not included in restaurant level margins. At CMG, you go from, I'm looking at a chart in front of me now that I, that I included in the, in the write-up. You go from restaurant uh, below the level line, below the level expenses being nearly 25% of revenues in 2001 to being less than 15% of revenues in 2005. So, you know, they added a significant number of units during that period, but it kind of speaks to kind of speaks to the amount of operating leverage you can get out of some of these expenses as you as you really start to grow the base and importantly as, you know, the, the new stores that you're building are maturing as well, right? Cuz, you know, a store in year 1 is is not going to produce results that are on par with what's going to produce in year 3, for example. So, I think that was part of the point I tried to get as when I when I listen to CNBC interviews or some of these other things and people we're talking to the CEO about it being profitable and what's the path to profitability and things like that. I think it just provides a little bit of perspective of, of how quickly these things can change and kind of what the drivers are. And honestly, as part of that, as a long-term investor or someone who's thinking about it a bit more intelligently than is this in the black or in the red, you have to ask the question whether or not you even want them to be profitable right now, <laughs> you know, because because there's trade-offs in these things, right? In terms of the amount of investment or the pace of unit growth and, and what's the kind of optimal um, the optimal goal. So um, I, I think it'll be it'll become much clearer once we get a couple quarters out from um, less so the IPO and more so the end of these Zoe's conversions, which will which will be done by the end of this year. Um, I think we'll start to get a much cleaner read on the economics, and and I think it'll become more apparent that uh, these guys, as it stands today, have have a pretty good business um, on their hands and. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how aggressively they want to push unit growth. Yeah, the I think what's interesting about restaurants is that they're so simple in one regards. Where, like, you look at some of the top ones from the last I don't know thirty years that have been great stock performers: Chipotle, Starbucks, Domino's. A lot of the times, like it's not all the time with Domino's, but a lot of the times these companies get you know premium valuations because you can see like, hey, look, they got a really good model. They have a very, you know, they all have these traits that make them super profitable and they have these unit economics that can basically boom, either go across the whole United States or, you know, some cases globally. You've studied a lot of these businesses, I think specifically Chipotle and Starbucks for a long time, maybe a few others. What are some common traits among successful QSR companies, which for any listeners, quick service restaurants? And do you think Kava has these traits why or why not? I think my my primary answer would be a lot of things that a consumer could just answer, right? Or a consumer would would note about these chains. Again, like the, the service model in my mind is something that's very notable that that can speak to whether or not this works over time. You know, going back to to Ron Shake and Panera, this is something he talks about. If you go listen to uh probably the there's there's a number of good interviews with them. Um the the how I built this interview is a very good one. Uh, I believe it was from 20. 16 or 2018. He talks about this idea of Panera having gone through, you know, two or three transformations where just by kind of having his eyes open and thinking about where the ball's going, it, it informed, you know, multi-year investment periods at the company for Panera. And, you know, the first big one is uh, he talks about in the nineties and he specifically talks about people like Howard Schultz at Starbucks. I think they were friends, uh, Jim, Jim Cook at uh, Boston Beer, Sam Adams, this idea of, you know, that 
that type of business emerging from what was historically more of a, you know, fast food Budweiser type of world. Right. Um, and, and that trend being something that even, even 30 years later is still kind of relevant. Right. I mean, it certainly is relevant in terms of something like Chipotle. Um, so I, I think it's, it's recognizing those things and then companies making adjustments as, as it becomes evident that they need to do so. I mean, online ordering obviously, and, and pickup and delivery would be another example today where, you know, a company like Chipotle is is continuing to build out Chipotle as far as I know, and it's been effective in terms of driving AUVs and, and unit economics. And if you're a new chain like Kava is, or you're going to, you know, triple your store base over the next 10 years, as they likely will, um, a big question would be how effective your strategy is for, for dealing with these things. And obviously, you know, digital technologies and things like that also play into it. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it is really just blocking and tackling and, and uh, I don't know if simple consumer insights would be the right thing, but when you recognize the big ones, really, really, really playing into those. Yeah, you mentioned Ron Shake. Shake. Um, let's talk a little bit of, more about him. What's his involvement here? You mentioned, I think they own 12 million shares. How important do you think that is to Kava's success long-term? Yeah. So again, he, he, not to go too deep, he started a, he started a cookie chain or a cookie store. And I believe it was in Boston, uh, somewhere in the Northeast. Um, and, uh, the cookie store was doing a decent amount of, I guess, afternoon and, and nighttime business, but it wasn't doing anything in the morning. So he got hooked up with the guys from Aban Pan, who, um, you know, they were doing pastries and things like that that could sell in the morning. And I think he, as he has said, he he thought they had a good business idea effectively, but he didn't think they were very good vendors slash operators. So that eventually led him to uh, taking control of Aban Pan. Then he's selling... Uh, these these breads and croissants and things and has customers coming in saying, hey, you know, cut this thing in half and he'd cut it in half and they'd grab uh, meats and cheeses from out of a bag that they brought with them and they're making sandwiches. And long story short, he he kind of credits that to the inspiration for, for going in the direction with Panera um, and, and making some notable decisions, by the way, in the late 90s around um, putting the the, the weight of the company behind that concept, right? And I think there's a there's a part of that in my mind that is a bit similar to to Zoe's and Kava, where if you go listen to interviews around the time of the deal, they they kind of thought maybe that these are two banners that can can just be run in parallel. And I think in hindsight, they they probably correctly came to the conclusion that the the best bet here is putting their weight behind Kava and making the tough decisions required to to get them there. So, so yeah, long story short, around the time of, of the decision to, to put the weight of the company behind Panera, I believe this is the late 90s, um, the company's stock price was around $3 or so. And, you know, fast forward to 2017 and Panera um, was acquired by, I believe it's JAB for, for $317 a share or $315 a share. Um, so, you know, 100x over uh, it's called 20 years just to be safe, which, which, which speaks to this business, right? It's it's a very difficult business to 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 stay ahead of the competitors because they can copy everything you do. And uh, there's many, many examples of retailers, restaurants, et cetera, that 
that have not stood the test of time. But when you find a concept that has attractive unit economics and is is broadly uh, demanded by consumers, let's just say the U.S. to keep it somewhat small, <laughs> that is broadly demanded by people across different geographies, um, you have the ability to to build a very very large number of stores in a relatively short period of time, and you know it can lead to to hundred x type type outcomes. So. Um, yeah, he's someone who has, Ron Shake has, has done, seen that personally. And now in his position as Acts 3, I, he's, he's in a place where he can, you know, make, it seems like a relatively limited number of bets on, on concepts or other players in the value chain, you know, in, in hospitality or restaurants that, that he believes are, are well positioned to, you know, have long-term success. How big do you think Kappa can get? Um, you know, it's a tough question. I've tried to, in preparation for the write-up, management gives a number in the S1 of this being a, of Mediterranean being a $40 billion category. Um, I, I think they specifically define that as restaurants in the U.S. There um, are a lot of local Mediterranean places. I got to say, there are a lot of them. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's something when I, it, it strikes me as something where the taste can kind of potentially adjust to, right? It's not so... I don't think it's so foreign to people that it's that it's like out of reach for them to consider eating food there. Right. I think it's, I don't think it's too far afield um, for it to be, it's not so adventurous. Right. Um, so yeah. So they say the number for the categories 40, you know, look at something like Chipotle, which is predominantly a U.S. chain. Their, their sales are up around $9 billion. Um you know, I don't know how big the Mexican category is, but if Chipotle is nine, I'm going to take a wild guess that it's at least two times larger than Mediterranean, maybe a couple multiples of that even. Um, so, you know, from where the company's at today, it's, it's kind of somewhat irrelevant how big it is. I mean, if it's 40, um, you know, the, the model that I use that, that kind of just tries to say, what does Kaba look like if it, if it is roughly similar to a mid-2000s Chipotle? Where does that get you in a couple of years? I think even then, five years out, you're you're at south of up two billion in revenues. And again, if the category's 40, 50, whatever it may be, um, you know, I, I don't think the size of the category is the problem. I think them them figuring out the unit economics, which it is one interesting thing from the S1. Um, this this company has a pretty uh, broadly diverse geographic presence. Um, some of it as a result of Zoe's and some of it as a result of kind of accidents of history of the business, just where they happen to grow early on. Um, and I, you know, I think you see some uh, divergence across different geographies and it's the kind of thing that they have to figure out over time, right? Um, um, maybe it doesn't work everywhere. And if it doesn't, then you have to figure out where it does and why. Um, so, but it's still so early that I don't, I mean, again, Chipotle, if, if we're going to take, the assumption that it does work everywhere. They're talking about having 7,000 units in the U S and Canada. Um, Kava, if it, Kava, if it works well, they're talking about having a thousand units in a decade. So we're not, we're not even anywhere close to, to being in the same ballpark. Right. Stock valuation. What conclusion did you come to? Can you maybe give some numbers on where they're at today? Price wise. 
Yeah, I think it uh, it was expensive when I published this a week or two ago when it was uh, I'm, I'm partly making these numbers up. It was expensive a week or two ago when I published it at 40 and now it's north of 50. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as of uh, as of this recording we're at 50 dollars and 50 cents up 6% today. So, nice little, you know. There you what's go. the what's the market cap? <laughs> 5 points according to Google Finance, so sometimes they don't update all the time. 5.7 billion. Yeah, it sounds roughly right. Um, you know, the hard part is, as I said before, as you're as you're thinking about what these what the margin trajectory looks like over time. Again, this is all assuming it kind of works, right? Um, if you're thinking about the margin trajectory looks like over time, I think there's a realistic path to, you know, as you look out five years or so, as they get up towards towards 500 units, you might have a business that's doing one and a half or two billion in revenues with uh, they. At, at that point, they'd probably be able to get up towards double digit EBIT margins. So, you know, again, if it's one and a half and 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 ten percent margins gets you one hundred and fifty million on uh, a five billion plus market cap. So, obviously, there's a lot baked in there. Um, you know, I think one of the questions that's interesting to ask if you kind of fast forward five years is is basically what would the right multiple be? And I think the answer is you'll ultimately find that the answer is either a very high number or a very low number. Because if they're if they've actually proven out that the concept works and they're at 500, I think you have or you know 600. I think you have a lot more clarity and assurance on this thing getting to thousands over time as opposed to starting from you know 250 or whatever it may be. So it's one of those weird things in investing where success can can be its own justification for potentially a higher multiple in terms of what it what it does to the certainty of the outcome. Okay. I want to shift maybe away from Kava and more towards something you something you talked about in your Kava write-up that I think is important, but it's more of like a general investing philosophy. You came to the conclusion that this is expensive. And you probably knew that going in just because of coverage on Twitter or CNBC or whatever. Why do you think it's important to do the work on it anyways, if you know before you have a good idea before that it's not going to be ownable at the current price? Yeah, I think the the the, the easiest way to say it is that I, I I think I've learned from past mistakes. And um, I, I think in investing, coming to judgments and conclusions that are not based on actually doing the work is a is a dangerous way to think about the world, especially when when you do that and then you see subsequent data points or, or subsequent facts about the business, you you have a tendency to frame things in a way that that kind of confirms what you've already, you know, air quotes concluded, right? Without doing any of the work. Um, and I think I did that, you know, Netflix, as, as you guys know, and as I've disclosed to subscribers, Netflix is a very big position for me now. And it's something that five, 10 years ago, I kind of laughed off as a, you know, as a younger, um, hopefully now smarter <laughs> value investor, I laughed off a, whatever the number was, 20, 30, $40 billion valuation as absurd for this thing that didn't make any money and had no competitive advantages and was completely dependent upon, you know, Disney and whoever else for, for content. And not to say I would have got it right if I had done the work, but I didn't honestly give it a look. Um, or the look that I should have given it or or learned about management, for example, to tie this into the to the Ron Shake part of the story at Kaba, you know, actually doing the learning and thinking about what's going on 
is is very important in my mind in terms of actually making intelligent decisions. And, and, and here, an interesting example might be maybe maybe Kava isn't the story, but Ron Shake's also involved at at Partech, and you know maybe that's maybe that's a company that is uh, interesting, and it's, it's also publicly traded, by the way. Um, so I think it's just basically forcing myself to actually do what I know I should be doing anyways, which is forming judgments and conclusion based on actual work and, and, you know, letting, letting the research serendipitously lead to other potential ideas. And, you know, it's remembering that I'm not so smart that I just know everything about everything without actually doing anything. (laughs) I seem to get get plenty wrong even when I do the work. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. I'll also say, I think we did a show on PAR technology like three years ago. So the story might've changed, but if you look it up, I think- That's a complicated be, story too. I mean, there might be something in the Chit Chat Money feed. Yeah. We could be yeah. due for an update though. Stock hasn't really gone anywhere. So it could be fun. Yeah. Maybe that's for, some, for, for people who are maybe younger, haven't been investing as long, maybe a learning from my own experience in investing and part of my research processes to that point, I, I go into Spotify and YouTube and I just type in a company's name or the CEO's name and, and literally listen to everything I can find. And honestly, the, the three, four, five-year-old things are typically more valuable to me than some of the more recent stuff, because it, it gives a, a sense for the way the company was talked about and, and understood at that period of time relative to what may be very different today. And there's, there's a lot to be, learn from that, in my opinion, especially if you kind of view yourself as a longer term investor who will live through periods like this. Right. So um, it's definitely a part of my process that is much more important than it maybe was five years ago. We won't everyone doing that because that's our growth hack for (laughs) organic marketing is to hopefully show up when someone searches a stock on Spotify or YouTube. So that might be, you know, maybe that's how people are listening to this right now. So Anyway, I think that is going to do it for our show. Brett, you have any more questions, comments? Nope. Okay. Well, uh, if you enjoyed this, go ahead and look up the science of hitting Substack. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. Um, we subscribe. We love it. And he actually just wrote, Alex just wrote one of my favorite articles, I think, that he's written so far, which is The Evolution of a Value Investor. So recommend reading that as well. But without further ado, I think we're going to uh, get to the disclosure here. Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Alex, again for coming on the show, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.